It's good to see all of you here at Woven Church today. Um, I am continually blessed to serve this congregation and to uh, really just Sunday after Sunday, um, it's a labor of love for me to study, to prepare, and to really preach my heart out, preach my heart out. And so we're continuing our series today, uh, the series Daniel Plan, and uh, this is a series uh, about resolutions. It's a series about change. And the last two Sundays, we've talked about making a change, um, part one and part two, how to make a change. And I don't know what your resolution is for 2018. I have my resolutions. It involves less sugar, less salt. Maybe your resolution is uh, uh, in, in the area of physical fitness or spiritual fitness or some kind of an internal change. And the thing about change is when you're about to embark upon a change, we need to sometimes psych ourselves up. We need to say, okay, we're getting ready to make a change, getting ready. And so the first half of this series leading up to February, um, just before the retreat, is that psyching up part. It's all this stuff and this self-talk. It's uh, what psychologists call change talk. Is that right, Emily? Change talk because... Uh, we go through these stages where at first we have ambivalent talk. I, I should change. I don't really want to change. Change talk is when there's more, uh, uh, more positive talk. It's more on the good side where you're ready to make a change. It's crossed over the 51% threshold, and you're really in a position to make a real change, a lasting change. And that's what we're doing. This first half of the series is getting us to move away from I really don't want to or I can't or I'll fail more to that other side of I I think I can. I can. And here's the irony about it. The more I tell you you need to change, there's a psychological phenomenon called resistance where if somebody says you really need to, you really need to stop eating those junk food. You really need to start you need to make a, you need to run more, you need to be in better shape. You know what happens? That psychological phenomenon is called resistance. It's resistance where the more I, your pastor, tell you that you need to change or that something is needed or you need to quit this, you're actually building up a case against me, or not against me personally, but more against, you're building up a case why you shouldn't. And that's the difficult thing about this. That's the thing about church. That's the problem with preaching. The more I do it, the more you listen to me talk, it's quite possible I'm reinforcing your resistance to change. And that's why the Holy Spirit has to fall. The Holy Spirit has to come and be the one to be the internal causal motivator to say there is something else that I need. There is something deeper. And my prayer is that the first half of this series, it won't be me cajoling you and telling you, you really need to do this, you need, you, need, you need to change, but that the Holy Spirit would descend upon our church in a powerful way, not just, until the, you know, not just leading up to Lent, but for good. And that the Holy Spirit would be the one that's causing the internal motivator to be more on the side of change talk and then once, once we get into the season of Lent, the second half of this series is going to be enacting that change, whatever that looks like. One of the big changes that I've made, if I can just personally share with you just right up front, is I've changed the way I'm pr I pray. 
I've changed the way I pray. I've been praying for 20 plus years, and I've gone through different seasons and different cycles. And the last stretch of my life, I've done, you know, I've done this stretch of, uh, you know, I've practiced contemplative prayer. I've practiced kind of praying through um, set prayers and formation. And my soul, as much as it's nurtured me, it's been good for me, I've longed to just get back on my knees and to cry out to God. And so one change that I've enacted this new year that I hope will not just last until March and April, you know, leading up till Easter, but I hope that this will be a change for good for the rest of of my life is that I will continue to be on my knees in that, I don't know what else to call it, but that heart cry, that prayer, that closet prayer where I'm in my room and I can I can express the deeper longings and, and groans and, and utterings that, that, that people can't understand, but the Spirit, the Spirit cries out. That's, that's a change that I've made. I've already begun that. And you don't have to wait till Lent, but if you need that extra motivation, you can, just one more Twinkie, one more Whopper, one more, you know, one more until, because Lent's coming around and, you know, then I'll make the change. By the way, uh, when Lent comes around, the sugar and the salts and all that stuff, I don't think that's something I can permanently do. So I'll limit myself to the season of Lent for that, for March and April, or February and March, rather. So anyway, that's what this series is all about, how to make a change. Someone gave me some really good feedback, um, and it was something along the lines that says, here's the thing about change. We can talk about the theology and, and the changing of the will, but if there are deep wounds, if there's a need for deep inner healing, change, that's another obstacle to change. And I can tell you that's exactly how I feel. I know in the last two Sundays as I've been preaching feelingly, preaching with what the old preachers called with the affections, preaching about the theology of change and about changing our will and our volition and all of these great things, I know that underneath it all, there's this one trap door, and that trap door is wounds, soul wounds, inner healing, and unless that doesn't take place, I know that for some of you, you can hear me preach about change, but you're consistently falling through that trap door. Why? Because there are inner wounds that are not met. There is deeper healing that needs to take place. I wish, I wish my words could, could heal. And to some extent, when you listen to the same preacher and the same teaching, week in and week out, it is very formative. It is. But at the same time, I'm struck with the limitation of the medium that I cannot bring about the change and the inner healing unless the Holy Spirit is present in our congregation. And so my prayer is today, as I talk about how to make a change, part three, that the Holy Spirit would begin to do a work of inner healing in your lives. And the Holy Spirit would board up that trap door that you consistently fall through. Yesterday, I lost my dog. And my son, he panicked. He said, oh, Bailey, Bailey, where are you? And we're running out into the street and we're whistling and calling. It turns out that there was a trap door. Well, not exactly a trap door. And my fence... Uh, one of the boards got loose and she was in the neighbor's yard. Unless I deal with that missing plank, 
unless I deal with that soul wound, unless you deal with that, that, that trap door in your life, the dog will constantly get out. The blessing will constantly bleed. You will leak. And so today I pray that the Spirit, and I've been praying that the Spirit is going to bring a deeper healing to our congregation and prepare us for a mighty work. Amen? And so I'm going to talk along two halves today, how to make a change. The first half, in order to make a change, you need to look back, to look back. And you're thinking, okay, Pastor Wayne is going to do this thing where he's going to have us look back and he's going to have us rocking in the corner, sucking our thumbs in a fetal position and getting in touch with our inner child. That's not what I mean. As much as that's important. When I say look back, I want us to look back to the biblical story and to recognize the trap doors, the missing planks, and to recognize how that might even be happening in our own lives. So the first half, we're going to look back into biblical history. And the second half, we're going to go forward. And so look back in order to go forward. We cannot go forward unless we adequately look back. We're looking at our history, the biblical history, but we're also looking at the future and this thing called vision. Man, Paul, we've got this thing going. Last, the other week you were talking about horticulture, and that was exactly what the sermon. Today you talked about vision. That's exactly dead on. Vision. In order to look towards the future and seeing an end goal, and strategy, and all of these things, in order to go forward, we also have to look back. And our church is looking forward. We're looking forward to big things. But before we do that, let's look back. Let's look back at 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15, if you can pull up that passage. I'm going to read two little stories here from 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 27. Let me set the stage. This is long after King David, long after King Solomon. The temple has been built in Jerusalem. In fact, Fast forward the story, Israel actually split into two parts, north and south. There was a civil war. And so you had two kings, two Israelite, two Jewish kings. The northern king, Israel, in verse 27, it says, Pekah, son of Remaliah, became king over Israel. And he reigned 20 years. And then in verse 28, it says, Pekah did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil. And then we look at the southern kingdom in verse 32. In verse 32, it says, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. And Jotham was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha. Now, Jotham, unlike uh, Pekah, he did right in the sight of the Lord. He did right. But then when you look in verse 35... You see this very interesting statement, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so what you have here is a story, basically two histories written simultaneously, side by side, Israel and Judah. And you have one king who did what was wrong and one king who did what was right. And when you read the book of Second Kings... And I'm going to actually speak to the young people in the audience today. You think the Bible is boring. You think the Bible does not have interesting stories. Try reading First and Second Kings. It's like 
a Game of Thrones series, and you shouldn't be watching Game of Thrones anyway. But there's a lot that happens in First and Second Kings as uh, you see king after king and nation, nations go to war, battles, intrigue. And the story is, is better than any, you know, AMC drama. And there's a formula that happens in kings, a formula that's repeated again and again. And that formula is this king either did good or evil in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes, according to this formula, they would mention the name of the mother of the king, the king's mother. And that's probably strictly for genealogical purposes, but there's perhaps more to that. I'm sure our psychologists can read into that quite a bit. And then lastly, there's this splinter in the narrative. It, it bothers you. It's like, I don't know what it is these days as I get older, I find when I eat food, I get food stuck in my teeth more often. And I really don't like it. It's, it's something that um, if I feel the slightest protrusion, or some, whether it's meat or whether it's something stuck in there, and it bothers me for the whole day, this phrase the high places were not removed, is like that piece of food that's stuck in your teeth. I know it's kind of gross. That just won't go away. It won't go away. And that thing, the high places, you see it throughout the entire narrative of the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. And I want to talk about that today. High places. What are the high places in my life, in your life, what are the high places in Israel's history? Again, I'm not doing psychology here. We're not just talking about us. We're talking about biblical history. These high places, well, first of all, let's do some biblical study. And let me just tell you a little bit what these high places actually were. They literally were high places. They would go to a high ground. Uh, back then, everybody was worshiping one God or another. If you went to high ground, you were closer to God. I guess there was a sense that they felt closer to God. But the thing about these high places were that they were not sanctioned by any authority. There was no approval. There was no um, orthodox, there was no seminary for high places. You would go to seminary and then you would teach the right thing. These were basically completely unsanctioned, decentralized, um, independent, grassroots it was basically prehistoric Israelite people saying, we are going to go worship and we're going to bring a sacrifice and we're going to go up to this high place and we're going to sacrifice and worship whatever deity uh, we feel led to sacrifice. And the thing about these high places, you, you, you must understand, reading the, the book of First and Second Kings, this is not just history, it's theology. And whoever wrote this is making an assessment, is looking back retrospectively and saying, there is a reason why we are in the trouble we are today. Scholars believe that the author of First and Second Kings lived during the time of the exile. In other words, this person had the benefit of hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty. When you look back and you're in trouble now, you ask the question, how did I get here? How did I get into this place? Woven, we need to ask that question too. Israel, asking the question, how did we get here, 
where we lost everything and we're in exile and looking back, making a retrospective evaluation, what they're seeing is it was the high places. The author is saying the reason we are in trouble is because there was something that stuck around that was just basically acceptable, accepted, and tolerated. What were these high places? How can we describe them today? Number one, they were accepted. They were accepted. High places, I, I can't even drill this, drill this point home enough. Um, high places were something back then that Israelites didn't even bat an eyelash at. <clears throat> it was something that they didn't really even notice. And here's the thing, if I can translate this and interpret this principle to us today, what is a high place in your life? It's something that you don't even notice as bad. Because the Israelites at the time did not notice. Again, this is written as a retrospective. This person had the benefit of history and hindsight. But at the time, they did not realize that high places were a bad thing. You might have a family operating style or a pattern or something in your history, and you don't realize that it's bad. You don't realize that there's something wrong. That's how insidious these high places were. Nobody at the time recognized it as a dangerous thing. So these high places were completely nothing to bat an eyelash at at the time. They were accepted. They were so sub-level that nobody recognized at the time that something dangerous, something dangerous was happening in the family system, that something dangerous was happening in the societal system, that something dangerous was happening. Nobody recognized this. And not only that, these high places were generational and generational and generational. Generation after generation, they practiced it. And you can see the same thing. The next king did what was good, but he didn't remove the high places. That piece of food is still stuck. I'm not going to stick my finger into my teeth. Don't worry, because I shake hands. It's still there. And then it says that one king did good. And then he would actually remove the high places and say, no, that's not the, we worship at the temple. We worship according to the orthodoxy of our faith. We worship the right way. But then you'd have another king that would come along and say, it's a party. And reset and set up the high places again. And these things, generation, it's something that I didn't do, but my grandpa did. That's how dangerous it was. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever heard of, I'm sure you've heard of John Quincy Adams was, I think, like the sixth or the seventh president of the sixth president of the United States, and uh, this sixth president of the United John John Adams um, came from a long line of alcoholism. And the funny thing is, it got his it got his father, it got his uncles, his brothers, it even got his sons. It skipped a generation. It skipped a generation. And John Adams was able to live to a ripe old age of 80 and become a president of the United States. But his sons still succumbed. And so there's this generational aspect where it skips a generation, but it's in there. And unless it's dealt with definitively, unless it's dealt with, listen to me guys, out in the open, it doesn't go away. In our staff, we've been trying to read this book, Crucial Conversations, 
for like the last five months. We, we bought it. I don't think we ever read it sitting there. You got to have a crucial conversation. You got to have a crucial family conversation. No, we don't talk about that stuff in my family. I love it. One person once said, in my family, we don't have to say I'm sorry. <laughs> we don't have to say I'm sorry. No, you do have to say you're sorry. What kind of a philosophy is that? That leads to all kinds of jacked up stuff. Yeah, we just kind of say, hey, you know, yeah, whatever. We don't say sorry in my family. High places. It's the stuff people don't talk about. And I want to offer two action steps when we talk about looking back. Because at this point, you're listening to me talk and you're feeling something. You're thinking, you're feeling convicted or you're feeling a, a, a soul wound or something, something. The first thing, the first act, active action step I want to prescribe, as you look back, pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening inside. Pay attention to what's happening inside. The name Larry Nassar might ring a bell. Yes? Anybody been following the news lately? Larry Nassar was the physical therapist for the U.S. Olympics uh, women's gymnastics. Is that correct? Uh, physician. I'll keep, this, I'll keep this PG, guys. But as, this, as the allegations go, and, and there are countless of, numbers of them, and uh, these gymnasts, when they were very, very young, they were told if they had an ache or if they were sore, they said, go see Larry Nassar. When they would go see Larry Nassar, he was supposed to be a miracle worker. And he would do the thing, you know, the right, or the, you know, but then he would do things that were just, we as adults and, and even old enough young people would know that's wrong. You don't do that. But the thing is, these young girls knew something was wrong, but it was almost as if it was accepted. Because everybody went to Larry, and everybody felt somehow better because, I mean, why else would they call him a miracle worker? But at the same time, these young women felt that something was just not right. They couldn't put their finger on it because they were still very young. But something about it just didn't feel right. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. You're, most of you are now not children anymore, and you're old enough to know, but it's funny how we still act like children. In a family system or in some kind of a system, something just doesn't feel right, but we brush it over. But pay attention to that. These are the spiritual high places in our lives. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening inside. If you ignore it, it will not go away. It will not go away. It will get worse. So pay attention. Learn to have crucial conversations. Learn to have crucial conversations. Um, Anthony, I'm, I'm thinking on my feet here. The second half of that application, let's just nix that, not show that. The first half, this first application is pay attention to what's happening. Pay attention to what's happening inside. And the second half of that, the second 
application is to have a crucial conversation. Have a crucial conversation. Pay attention to what's happening. Don't ignore it. And then have a crucial conversation. Who? That might have to be with your family member. That might have to be with a trusted friend. That might have to be with somebody in the church. But have a crucial conversation. What is left unspoken will likely, could possibly, potentially make it worse and allow it to continue. You need to have a crucial conversation. I'll go so far as to say there is, there's even a book about that. So pay attention to what's happening and have a crucial conversation. Friends, ultimately what I'm saying is I'd, I hope that we can become a spiritually open church. And by that, I mean that we can go against some of, for some of us, our cultural sensibilities. We keep things private. Begin to learn to be more transparent. Okay, so we're looking back. But don't get stuck in morbid reflection. You know, you're looking back. You're sitting. I know someone who just likes to look back and think about the past and just kind of rock back and forth. Just look back and all the, the things I regret about my life and all the things that didn't go. No, 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 don't do that. Move forward. Move forward. Everyone here is still young enough to do that. You're still young enough to move forward. So go forward. This is the second half. This is the second half. I'll start off with a little anecdote kind of to set the stage for going forward. There's this movie that um, I own. It's not the greatest movie, but, you know, I, I enjoy it for some reason. It, it's it's um, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise and uh, that famous Japanese actor. There's so many problems with this movie, by the way. But... Um, there's a line in that movie where you have a samurai and, you know, you're talking like, really, he's like the last samurai, the Japanese samurai, and they all have such a strict and strong system of honor, and he knows that he's facing certain death to stand up for his cherished beliefs. And he asks his friend, Tom Cruise, and he says, do you believe a man can change his destiny? And here's somebody that has such a strong sense of destiny and fate. And that's the question. Am I destined to die? To go out in a blaze of glory? Am I destined to fail? That's what he's asking. Am I destined to experience a tragic, tragic death where everything... Or is there a way that we can change this narrative? Is there a way that I can change my story because I feel stuck. I feel that I am destined to end up a screwball, a loser. Is there a way that I can change my destiny? That is the key question. And friends, you cannot change your destiny. You cannot. The Holy Spirit can. And I've seen this with my eyes in countless lives. I've seen it. You can change your destiny if the Spirit of God is alive and well in you. A friend of mine told me very recently, he himself 
uh, a recovering, recovering from a lot of things, a lot of dangerous things. And he told me, he told me that he heard a story about somebody that was his friend when he was a lot younger. And this friend of his was also trying to get sober from those same things, opiates, alcohol, and so on and so forth. And after many years, he lost touch, but then finally he saw his friend on Facebook wearing a very distinguished color of orange. Orange. You know what I'm talking about. And it was a mere day or two, you're talking hours, that he got out of jail and he was no more. He was dead. Here's somebody that could not change his destiny. But then, my friend telling me the story is evidence that you can change your destiny. But it takes the Spirit of God coming upon your life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 to 9. 1 John chapter 3. Listen to these words. I'm going to read from verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared, Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in Christ there is no sin. No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has seen Christ or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Do you like that? For the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because the seed of Christ abides in you. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. I used to be terrified of this verse. When I, when I would read the New Testament, I would just pass this part. Or I would skim it and just say, something's wrong with, something's broken there. That, that's, that's harsh. No one who abides in Jesus sins. No one who sins has seen God. No one who is born of God sins and he cannot sin. In other words, I must not be born of God because I still sin. I must not be a Christian, a true Christian. I must not know God because I still struggle. And friends, there's something here. Listen, this is, I don't, I, I try not to, you know, show off and do the Greek thing. Well, I, I kind of do. <laughs> but this is one of those few places where there's a little knowledge of the language will actually go a long way. What I just read is the New American Standard Version I think a better and more accurate translation can be found in the ESV. In the ESV. And by the way, we are not a single translation church. We use different translations to get at the heart of the message. Why? Because we're disciples. We study Scripture here. The English Standard Version actually captures something that's happening in these verbs. You, know, you don't sin. You don't sin anymore because you're a Christian. Actually, there's something happening in these verbs. And there is, a, there, is a, there is a continuous aspect in these Greek words. There is a sense, a continual sense 
a continual sense, this is important, a continual sense to these verbs so that it is accurate to read, accurate to translate it in the English Standard Version. It captures this. Anyone or no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. In verse 6, no one who continues to sin has seen Christ or knows Him. In verse 9, no one who is born of God makes a continual practice of sinning. Do you, do you see that? There's a subtle difference there, and it's real. In, verse, in fact, it says he cannot keep on sinning. What's being communicated here accurately in 1 John 3 is not shame on you. You sin, you must not be a Christian. What's being communicated here is if you are a Christian, the day is coming eventually when you will sin less and less and less. I don't believe we'll be perfect in this lifetime, but I believe we'll get pretty close. That's my own personal view. I don't believe we'll get perfect in this lifetime, but if we are living a life of sanctification, we should be getting closer and closer as the years go by. There will be a day when we no longer sin, at least in the hereafter. But we need to be moving towards that trajectory. Do you get that? 1 John 3 is not saying a shame on you, you sin. It's saying, now that you are a Christian, in fact, it's translated that way in verse 9, because you have been born of God. That's a, that's a, that's a perfect tense verb there. And a perfect tense verb, listen to this carefully, is an action that took place in the past with continuing effects into the present. The Greek perfect is an action that's been completed. You have been born of God. Don't doubt it. Completed in the past with effects felt into the present. Because you have been born of God, you will cuss less. Because you have been born of God, you will lie less. You will cheat less. You will steal less. You will slander less. You will resent less. You will hate less. You will lust less. In all of these areas, you will be making continual progress. Not perfection, but headed that way. Friends, what are we talking about here? We are talking about vision, vision. Now, this week I was at a, at a prayer gathering and I'm, they were more of the charismatic bent, let's just call it that. And it was really good. It was refreshing. I hadn't been in that kind of context where somebody would pray and, and, and speak into your life, prophesy. And, and um, this person prayed over me and said some things, and I was like, holy cow. There was no way he could have known all those things. And they were all dead on. They were dead on. Really powerful things. Imagine if somebody prayed over you and said, Zach, you are destined to be an Olympic athlete. You're destined to play for the Philadelphia Eagles. Thus saith the Lord, Zach. 
How would you live your life? He says, in fact, I have the exact date. Uh, this is getting a little wacky. This is kind of far out. But let's just say this person, not, not only is this person prophetic, but this person has a good track record. He says, in 10 years to this day, in 10 years, how old are you? Nine? No, 11. You're, you can't be nine. You're older than Austin. 11. So 21. In 10 years, you are going to play for the, uh, for the, the Eagles. Eagles, that's your team, right? Oh, Say what? So, you're going to play for the Eagles. How are you going to live your life for the next 10 years? Think about that. This is how I'm going to live my... Well, he said it, so I don't have to do anything. I'm going to watch a lot of... I'm going to play Madden. Maybe that, that'll get me. You know, but other, other than that... I can, I, can, I can treat my life, I, don't, I can live, I don't have to go to school. Mom, he said, he doesn't have to go to school anymore. He's going to play for the Eagles. He's set. He doesn't have to go to school. He's, well, if you're going to be a football player, you have, I, don't, I want to eat potato chips. Well, you're gonna, you, you can't eat potato chips. I can eat whatever I want because in 10 years, it's going to happen. Is that a correct understanding of grace, the grace of God? That's actually an incorrect understanding. Because something happens when you, are, when, when you get a vision for who you're going to be. When you get a vision for who you are going to be, you internally begin to motivate and change. You get a vision for your future, and the internal motivator begins to change, and causally the Holy Spirit begins to... You, you begin to want to say... I want to get up and I want to go jogging, running in the morning. Why do you want to do that? I, I don't know. I just feel motivated. And you have this vision of yourself 10 years from now, 275 pounds, like, you know, like <laughs> a football player, and, you're, and, and, and you, you, you have an appetite, and you're eating healthy foods, and you, you want to start studying, and you want to do well. And you're motivated. Why are you motivated, friends? Why are you motivated? You can see where this analogy is going. Why are you motivated? Why are you motivated? You're motivated because Scripture is giving you a glimpse of who you're going to be. This is why we must fill our mind with His vision. That's the first application. Why, when you read Scripture, you must see what the Bible tells you you are going to be. The Bible tells you you are going to be perfected one day. Perfected soul, mind, body, spirit. Or uh, theologically, it's more body and spirit. But you're going to be perfected. It tells you you're going to be perfected. It tells you you're going to be whole. It tells you you're not going to sin. You know what motivates you to stop that besetting behavior or that besetting sin that still nags you? Me telling you not to do that is not going to help. You getting a vision one day of being free from that thing is. Get the vision. Get the vision. Fill your mind with His vision. And by that, I mean His Scripture, His words. You know, like when you go into a locker room and... Uh, this is probably more of a, a male experience. And, and, you know, 
you know, you see pictures of, of what you want to be. You see examples, role models. Go to your private place of prayer and surround yourselves not with those, just those physical specimens, but surround yourself with the vision of God, with Scripture that tells you, child, this is who you are and who you will be. Surround yourself with that motivational talk, that change talk. Surround yourself with Scripture, constantly with Scripture. If I could just share with you, you, you know, most of, some of you know that I'll be traveling today. I'll be in Chicago just for some denominational stuff. And when I, when I travel, I have a habit. I have the Holy Bible app. I'm a, I'm a chronic swiper. You know, any app that I open, I got I to gotta swipe it all out constantly. But I always leave the Holy Bible app open. I do that because I want to have this motivational talk in my ears. When I travel, there's so many stressors. There's so many stressors, and I literally have the motivational, I have His vision for me through Scripture, constantly meditating through my mind as I'm going through TSA. In fact, I'm going to do that today. I give you my word. That's what I'm going to do today, meditate on Scripture as I make my way. You fill your mind with His vision, and you get a healthy vision of yourself. By the way, before I conclude, can I just read to you? There's a last part. There's a last part to 1 John chapter 3. Actually, it's not a last part. It's an earlier part. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3. It actually proves what I'm saying. Verse 2. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are children of God. This is not you're not children. This is we are. It has not appeared as yet what, he, what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. You get that? That's vision talk. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, this vision, this hope fixed on Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. Those are beautiful words. We will be like Him. Even if today you're not yet, you're still struggling. But you will be like Him. The last application is more will be revealed. Fill your mind with His vision, and in time, more will be revealed. I've experienced this in my life. I assure you, your story has not been written yet. Live well, more will be revealed. More will be revealed. Hang tight. Hold on to your faith, more will be revealed. Things are not looking the way that you want them to be, more will be revealed. You're wondering if everything is closing in on you, more will be revealed. You worry if you're ever going to make progress, or if you're ever going to get better, or if you're ever going to make a change, more will be revealed. So in conclusion, I want to invite you to close your eyes and to have a, a, a time of response and to talk back to God and however you feel led quietly or under your breath or just to out loud speak to Him 
And as the music plays, I want to invite you into a time of personal devotion and response. Because you're looking back at your life and you're saying, there was, there was something happening. There's something happening right now. Pay attention to that. But then you know that you're afraid to talk about it. Ask God for the courage to have a crucial conversation. But friends, don't just look back. Look forward. Hear what Scripture says you are going to be. Hear what Scripture says you will be perfect. You will be like Him. Hear Scripture. Fill your mind with that. And in time, more will be revealed. So as you are led, respond and have some devotion now. Have a prayer. Have a good cry out. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.